Hey guys, thank you for watching online all over the world. We are honored that you would watch LifePoint Church Services. Our mission statement around here is pointing people to a Christ-centered life, and we want to hear how that's happening through these sermons. So we would love for you to reach out to us through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and tell us how God is moving in your life. Also, if you're a part of this service, but, but you're not close to a local campus, we want to help you get connected to a local body. Please reach out to us, and we will recommend some great churches in your area for you to be a part of. Again, thank you for being a part of LifePoint Church Online, and we hope God blesses you. All right, if you've got your Bibles, John 3 is where we are, and uh, you know we're going through the book of John. We'll probably have one more week in John. We'll take a break during the, the, the Advent season, di different things, pick it back up at the beginning of next uh, year, and, uh, but we've been calling the series Jesus, because that's essentially what it's about. John is just writing about Jesus, his character, his nature, the life events, like everything about uh, Christ. And so it's been a really cool book. And then last week we read probably the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, which Brandy uh, already read. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life and or eternal life. And I, I think this is a verse that every believer should have memorized. Martin Luther uh, says that it is uh, it is basically the miniature gospel. It is the heart of the Bible, is what he says. And packed into one, one verse is, is the gospel. And so uh, really great verse to memorize. And last week we focused in on the first part of it. God so loved the world. We talked about what that meant. What did it mean that God loved the world? And you can go back and watch that. Uh, but, but essentially, um, the, the, the concept is... It's not mind-blowing that God loves a world that is big. It's mind-blowing that God loves a world that's so bad. And so the fact that God loved us, the Scripture says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so it's, it's not the amount of people, it's how dark we are, how bad and, and wicked our hearts are, how dead we were spiritually, and yet He still poured out love upon us. And that's the amazing part of God so loving the world. And and uh, it, obviously, it's a popular verse, it's an amazing verse, but like all great verses in the scriptures, uh, a lot of people can take it out of context and use it in ways that are not consistent with the scriptures. One of those ways uh, is that saying, okay, God so loves the world, that means love wins, all dogs go to heaven, our default destination is heaven, because a loving God would not send anybody to hell. That's not what a loving God would do. And so, I want to talk about that for just a moment. I want to read to you Psalm 11, 5, because the idea that love wins and that everybody goes to heaven, it, it sounds great. And a lot of people preach that. A lot of pastors, so-called pastors, preachers, preach that message, but it's kind of like cotton candy, like tastes sweet, but it doesn't fill you up. It has no substance. As a matter of fact, it'll rot your soul. And so I, I want to speak to the other side of that for just a minute. Psalm 11, 5 says, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. So how can God simultaneously love the world and hate the wicked? It's this character and nature of God that he, he, he loves humanity in that we were made in his image. That He created us, he formed us, he made us in his image, but he also can't stand the sin that we continue to put in our heart, soul, lives. He, he, he detests it, so much so the scripture says he hates 
wickedness. He hates the wicked. And so how do we wrestle with that? How do we uh, deal with that? It's, and I think this isn't unfamiliar to us. We have love-hate relationships with a lot of things, right? Like I have a love-hate relationship with Tennessee football, right? <laughs> I love Tennessee football, and I hate Tennessee football, right? Like I have a love-hate relationship with uh, chocolate and peanut butter. I love it because what it does for me, my soul, it's soul care. <laughs> but I hate it because what it does to me, right? <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like, this love-hate relationship, and the same thing God loves in that he, he made us. He, he formed us. He fashioned us in our mother's wombs. He names us. He puts the hair on our head. He knows how many there are. Some, it's harder to know that than others. You know, there's, uh, he loves us, but at the same time, he hates sin. He hates wickedness. It, he, is, he is absolutely opposed, so much so it says he, he, he grows in wrath towards sin and rebellion and wickedness. And so, uh, you know, anyone who would say that God saves all, that he loves all uh, in, 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 a, in a way that he wouldn't send anybody to hell is contrary to Scripture because he also has to deal with, the, he, he's both God is love and God is wrath simultaneously. And, and so our sin, every single one of them will be punished, either we will take that punishment in eternal wrath or Jesus will take that punishment on the cross for us. But every sin, every tiny sin, every lie, every stolen paper clip, every, every, the tiniest thing you can think of, every sin will, go, will be punished. And so you can, you can warp the scripture like that, and obviously that's not true. A lot of people also say, you know, there are, there's one mountain to God. There's many paths up the mountain. I think John 3.16 would say, no, no, there's only one path of the mountain. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He didn't say whoever believes in him or Buddha or Muhammad or, or any other way, can, if good works or, or any other thing can get up to God. No, he didn't say that. Matter of fact, Jesus confirms that over and over when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so the exclusivity of Jesus being the only one who can save humanity, he is the only way to be saved. And so the, the twisted gospel that says, oh, everybody just finds their own path and makes their own ways contrary to the Scripture and contrary to the most famous passage in the Bible. The Bible is really a story of the redemptive of God's redemptive history like if you remember in the garden right Adam and Eve God creates them he forms them he makes them in his his own image right and he makes everything he 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 makes you know, rhinos and peacocks and mountains and streams and valleys and, and humanity. And, and, and he, he forms the world, ribeyes and rosé. I mean, he just forms it all, right? And, uh, and he says, hey, Adam and Eve, uh, this is the rule. And they obeyed that for about 15 minutes, <laughs> which is probably longer than any of us. And all of a sudden, the curse of sin entered the world, and, it, and it, 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 that curse of sin has fallen on all humanity, and has fallen on all creation. But here's the grace and mercy of God. The grace and mercy of God is that he didn't leave us like that. 
Because a lot of people can say, well, why doesn't God just save everybody? And why doesn't he just make a bunch of different paths to get to know him? That's the wrong question to be asking. The right question to be asking is why does God save anybody and why does he make any way possible? Because the reality is he didn't have to. He could have left us. He could have left us under judgment and under wrath. Do judgment and wrath, like justice to fall on us. He could have left it like that, but he didn't. In his grace and his mercy, he provided a way. And so the story of redemptive history is he, he began by creating a people. He, he identified Abraham, who was a, a godless pagan that he pulled out and made a, 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 from him his own people. And so he calls to Abraham. He says, hey, you're going to be my people, and you're going to go to this land. I'm going to take you here, and I'm going to make you to be a nation that's great. And, and all of a sudden, here, from Abraham begins this people group called the Israelites, God's people, right? And we, we've talked a little bit about them and how up and down they are, right? They, they love God and then they complain and God smites them and it's just this over and over process of, uh, of them continuing to rebel against God. Well, God loves his people so much that the reason we have a lot of the Old Testament is he kept sending prophets to his people. These prophets would show up and they'd say, hey, guys, repent, you're worshiping false gods. You're worshiping the wrong God. You've got to tear down these false gods that you're worshiping because these lead to death and you need to come back to God who is life. You know what the people of God did to those prophets? They killed them. They ran them out. They didn't want to hear from them most of the time. And so God, in his great patience, and his great mercy and his great goodness. Over and over, prophet Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Obadiah, Malachi, prophet after prophet after prophet. He says, you know what? I'm going to send my son. And Jesus sends, comes, uh, takes on flesh. You know what we do? We kill him too. And God is continually walking through the history of man redeeming it and telling him to come back to God. And he goes so far as to send his own son. And we go so far as to say, we don't even want that. We'll kill him too. But the beauty of God's grace and mercy is that that was the plan all along. And that he said, I'm going to send my son and you're going to kill him. But even in you killing him, the way for you to be saved is for you to look upon him. That sacrifice, that killing, that crucifixion. See, we, a lot of false gospels and false religions try to navigate around the cross. Because the cross is bloody, it's messy, it's dirty. If we can find a way to God without death, then that's what we want to do. But the reality is, there is no other way to God. You come and you die. And you say, I... I have nothing to give to you, God, but my sin, and I give it to you, and I die to myself. And that's when he brings you to life spiritually. And this is the grace and mercy of God. For God so loved you that he gave his only son, that our sins killed him. He gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. Now, I want to zero in on that. 
God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever, that whoever would believe upon him shall not perish. Now, I don't want to perish, okay? So I want to find out what do I have to do to not do that, right? Okay, so it says whoever would believe upon him. Okay, believe. I've got to believe. So in order to not perish, to have eternal life, I have to believe. What does that mean? I need to figure out what does it mean for me to believe. To, 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 it's important, so important that it determines where my soul will spend eternity. Then I need to get this one right. And that's our bottom line. I'm, I'm going to give you this. Our bottom line is God gave, we believe. God gave his only son, we believe, right? And so that's what we're talking about. Now I want to read to you a couple more scriptures backing up the importance of us believing. John 3, 18 which I'll read again uh, towards the end of this, says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's pretty black and white. (laughs) But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That is very clear. I love clarity. (laughs) That is a very clear scripture, and we'll talk more about it. John 3, 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So our eternal destination hangs in the balance on what we believe. That what we believe determines those things, right? And so Jesus' death, his resurrection, sufficient to save the entire world, but only applies to those who believe. Whoever believes will not perish, but have but have everlasting life. So I think that's very important for us to determine. Uh, the reformers had, uh, to, help us, to help us understand this, there were three words for believe. Three, three things that be- the word believe encompasses. And I want to give you those three things today and, and to help us really grasp our minds around what does it mean to believe. The first one is notitia. Notitia, these, these are Latin words, by the way. Uh, notitia just means knowledge uh, specifically about the gospel, knowing what to believe, knowing uh, what, is, what is true. And so uh, you, and, and it's why we have scriptures that says, how will they know unless someone tells them? How will they be told unless someone goes? Like, in order, the first step in accepting the gospel is knowing the gospel, understanding the gospel. Now, you don't have to know every single word of the scriptures and every single doctrine of things, but you do have a, have a basic grasp and understanding of the gospel, namely these things. You have to understand that you are a sinner. If you come thinking you can be a Christian without understanding you have depravity and sin and a problem of soul that needs to be dealt with, then you don't understand Christianity. And then you will not fully understand the gospel because you won't understand that you needed someone to save you. And so the first step in understanding is understanding that you needed a Savior. You are not just good in and of your own self you were dead spiritually you were depraved you were wicked and you needed someone to reach down and to save you and so these are basic truths that you have to understand in order to be saved you have to understand that you were sinner separated from God and you have to understand again that Jesus is the only one who can save you he is the only way to be saved a a belief and a trust in his work on the cross to take your place, to to take your sin away from you and to give you his righteousness. These are 
basic things that you have to understand. And so you have to, you have to know some things. Now, I want to refute a little bit because over the last 100 years, there's been you know, health and wealth movements and different things like that, that that categorize faith as like this leap in the dark kind of idea. Right. Like it's if you, you don't have enough faith. Well, what does that mean? Well, you got to just do some crazy stuff and believe crazy stuff and then you'll have enough faith. Well, th- that is not the when we see belief and faith in the Bible, that's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about just grasping in the dark and trying to just believe like I'm, I'm not going to look for and close my eyes and walk and hope I don't run into something. You know, it's not like that. Right. It's not like like like, for instance, here's a great example. Um, I had a faith or believe that Tennessee could beat Kentucky. <laughs> Obviously, that was a leap in the dark, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the faith of the scripture is founded on, on truth. We have truth to, to believe. We have specific things that we believe, which is a side note. This is why it's important. If you are a believer, it's important for you to continue to study theology, continue to learn about God, know about God, press into God. Why? Because we worship God with our minds. We don't just veg out and binge watch, watch stranger things. We, we have some things that we be about with the scriptures. We study the Bible. We know the Bible. We continue to know more about, about God. And so it's important for us to worship God with our minds. It's not just, it's not, a, it's not an irrational, optimistic hope. It's founded on the truth, the truth we find in the scripture, truth we know about, uh, about God, right? And so th- those are things you got to know. You got to know that uh, uh, you were a sinner. You got to know that the only way to heaven is to fall upon Jesus, to believe and trust in him, that your works won't get you there. That's a big thing, I think, especially in our culture and you may say, David, you preach this every week. I know, because I'm preaching to a very religious culture. We have to understand that our good works do not get us to heaven. They never will. Matter of fact, there will be a lot of good, moral people in hell forever. Because they thought their goodness or their morality was good enough to get them into heaven, and it's not. The scripture refers to our goodness and our morality as filthy rags before God. And and if we believe that our goodness and morality can get us there, it completely diminishes the cross. It says we don't need Jesus. We don't need the cross. We'll just scrub up our lives and be clean enough and he'll let us in. So it's trying to bypass the crucifixion. It's trying to bypass the cross. No, no, no. We come to the cross and we say, no, 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 there was no, we echo Paul's words that say, there was no good in me. There was no good in me. There's not one that seeks God, no, not one. We say, there was nothing savable in me. And I, I lay down my, my life and I, I come to the cross and I, I die so that you may bring me back to life. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. We can't get in by, uh, you, you know, if you do man on the street and go interview 10 people and you say, hey, are you going to heaven? They say, yeah. And then you say, well, why? Well, I haven't killed anybody. Uh, you know, I pay my taxes. I drive a hybrid, you know, pretty good. <laughs> that's, that's the culture we live in, that we're okay because we're not in jail. <laughs> that's ridiculous. The only way to be saved is to say, 
here I come with all my sin and my depravity, and it's the only thing I have to give you, Jesus. Here, the only thing I have to offer you is my sin. The only thing I have to offer you is my wickedness. I can't earn salvation. I can't come to you. Okay, so noticia is the first one, right? Now, uh, before I move on, uh, not, uh, if you believe in false truths, it, it will not give you eternal life. A lot of other religions do this, right? Mormonism, they, they uh, don't give Jesus the deity in which he stands in. Same thing with Jehovah's Witness. They, they, if, you, if you believe wrongly, it can cost you eternally. So belief is important. What you believe, what truths you believe are important. That's why, again, hear me, church, it's important for you to be grounded on the Scripture so you're not tossed to and fro by every wave of doctrine. This is important for you to know the Bible, to know God, continue to press in and study Him, right? This month, we celebrate the 500th year of the Reformation. Really, one of the biggest things that came out of that is that we can have our own Bibles. You might have 10 of them at your house. Read one of them. It's what men died for us to have these scriptures. It's important for us to know the right truth. All right, so that's the first one, Notitia. Second one is a census. It's, it's the idea that, okay, so Notitia, I, I know a truth. I know this to be truth, but I can still be rebellious of heart. Many of you have this testimony, right? You say, I grew up in church. I was raised in church. I, I had a drug problem, right? My mama drugged me to church, right? Uh, so <laughs> you, may, you may have that going on with you. Like, you know all the answers. You're Betty Bible drill. You know, you're like, if I say, hey, turn to Ecclesiastes, you're going, Ecclesiastes, you know? I hated you, by the way, when I became a Christian. I almost ripped out every page of this Bible and put it together in alphabetical order just so I could find something, right? And then someone told me about the table of contents. All right. Uh, I still had a search in that thing. What is that? Obadiah, it's half a page. Uh, so, uh, so this idea that we know a truth, but we can still be rebellious to it. So you may have grown up in church. You know all the things about God, but you've said, I know these things in my mind, but my heart has not subscribed to those things. This is rampant in our culture. Oh, yeah, I know all the answers. I know all the truth. I just don't want to do it. I'm, I'm, my heart is still rebellious to that. I, I know, I know that it's not my good works, but I still want to do good works because it makes me feel better about myself. I know it's not church attendance, but if I do that, then, I, you know, then my conscience and my guilt is appeased, and I really don't have to have an encounter with God. I can just have this idea of God that doesn't really cost me anything. And so a sense is that next step of saying, not only do I know a truth, but I'm not rebellious to it. I, I, I say yes to that. I, I agree. I'm, I'm in, in agreement with that truth. Wholeheartedly, I'm in agreement with that truth. So, so Notitia, a census, and the third one is fiducia, which is, I think, one of the most important steps of believing. You know a truth. Your heart is not rebellious to that truth. You say, yes, that is a truth. I believe that to be truth. Fiducia would say, all right, I'm going all in and trusting that to be true. I'm committing my life to that. 
So believe, when we say you must believe, those who, who, whoever would believe upon him would not perish but have eternal life are people who acknowledge it to be true, are not rebellious to it. They have subscribed to it. But even beyond that, they say, this is my life. I've committed everything to it. I, I, I want to give you an analogy. Let me get, get a chair. I had my youth pastor in here first service, so I guess I got to do the work myself. myself. All right, it's a chair. I couldn't do this at Riverdale High School, by the way. It would have been a lot harder. All right, chair. We can agree? This is a chair? I can know, no, Tisha, I can know all things about this chair. It's got this gray, fabric-y print cushion, pretty comfy. You know, they're breaking in, so they're getting more comfortable. But, you know, pretty comfy. Four legs on, I guess, aluminum or something. I guess I don't know everything about it. But it's a chair. I know that to be a chair. I can describe it as a chair. I can define it as a chair. I can explain to you what a chair is and what a chair is supposed to do. I know it's a chair. Okay? A census would say, all right, I don't have any real qualms about sitting in this chair. Like, I'm not rebellious about sitting in this chair. Okay, I know this chair, but I refuse to sit in the chair. I'm going to stand up. I'm not going to sit in there. No, no, no. I believe this to be a chair. And yeah, I have, no, I have no problem with sitting in this chair. I believe that it could hold me. I believe it could, you know, support my weight and make me not fall and be a comfortable spot. But the fiducia, committing our life, is the part of belief where we do this. Yeah, this is nice, huh? I might preach from here the rest of the time. Better than standing. It, it, it's the idea that we can know all, all we can know about God. And we can even say, we like it. We like the idea of God. But have you sat in the chair? Have you come to God with, with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and you've said to him, listen, I can't do this. I, I can't save myself. I'm coming to you and I'm, I'm I'm committing my life to you so much so that I'm, I'm going to sit in the chair. I don't just know you cognitively. And I don't just agree with what I know about you. I, I'm putting it to the test. You know, this is why Jesus said, when he said, you want to be my disciple? Here's what you need to do. You need to die to yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. That's a little different than you need to come to church Go to membership class and get dunked in some water. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you have to count the costs. Because sitting in the chair, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you everything. That's what Christianity is. It's not an improvement upon an old kind of rugged self that if you just clean up a couple areas of your life, then you'll be okay. It's going back to, I preached about this last week, the Numbers 21 analogy of the guys are in the desert. They've disobeyed God. God sends poisonous snakes. They're biting the people and people are dying. And Moses says, God, you have to help. God says, okay, you raise up this a bronze staff with a snake on the end of it. And anyone who's been bitten by the snake, if they look upon that image, they will be healed. But what we like to do, because the same thing, is this, that 
picture is a picture of the gospel. We have to look to Jesus to be saved. But what we like to do is we've all been bitten by the snake. And instead of looking upon Jesus and having him root out the venom of our heart and life and actually heal the wound, what we like to do is we like to just cover the wound up, try to pretend like it's not there, put some nice jeans over top of it, and then maybe no one will notice that I have a huge snake bite on my ankle. And if I don't have to deal with the venom, and if I don't have to show anybody the venom, if I don't have to do that, then I really don't have to deal with God. But the only person you're fooling is yourself. The only way to be made right with God is to allow him to root out the venom and to heal your wound. And we were all born bitten. No one is exempt from this. It doesn't matter your upbringing, your socioeconomic status, your skin color, the country you live in. We were all born dead in sin. And there's one answer for all humanity. And that answer is Jesus and him alone. He's the only way to be saved. He's the only way to be saved. And you believe in him. By knowing that's the only way to be saved, not being rebellious to that truth, and then actually sitting down, committing your life to him. All right, let's read out this passage, and then we'll be done. 17 through 21. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. This is the verse I already read. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God couple of things, real quick, and then we'll close. Uh, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. Why? Because the world already stood condemned. We were in the garden. The curse of sin spread to all creation and all humanity. Those who do not believe, Scripture says, are condemned already. So Jesus not coming to condemn doesn't mean he doesn't come to judge. It just means that the world was already condemned. He's coming to save. He's coming to bring life to those already condemned. He's coming to uh, to remove condemnation for those who would believe. And and, and again, John here points out, I think it's important for us to to realize this. He's pointing to the way way in in which to be saved, the way to which you know you are saved is is internal transformation. He says, basically what he's saying is, you're going to know those who love Jesus, who are committed to Christ, who truly believe, because those are the ones that love the light and hate the dark. The ones that hate, uh, uh, hate the light and love the darkness, they haven't been transformed from the inside. And so men who refuse to come to Christ, who reject Christ, those are ones who love the dark. They love their sin. They love the darkness. Here's what happens when you come to Christ, right? And you know this to be true if you're a believer. You come to Christ, and all of a sudden, you begin to be confronted by all these things that are in your heart that are, that are 
uh, that are not Christ-like, right? And so the light shines on you, and you, you, the light shines on your sexual immorality, and you begin to say, oh, okay, uh, that's not Christ-like. That, okay, uh, I, I, gotta, I, I wanna root that out of my heart. I gotta change that. The, the light shines on, your, on racism or hatred of your heart. You, you begin to say, oh, okay, oh, all right. Uh, that's not Christ-like. I want, I want to root that out of my heart. It, or, or he shines a light on your gossip. And you continue to gossip and, and slander people all, all day. And he, he just shines the light on it. You say, okay, I want to root that out of my heart. I want to get that out. Or the, the lies that we You want to get that out of your heart. But you know the difference between a saved man and a lost man is that the lost man says, I don't want the light to shine on those things. I don't. I don't want that. I want that conviction. I don't want that light. I, I love my darkness, and I want to stay in it. The saved man comes to the reality that the gospel does this over and over and over, and we are constantly in a state of repentance because we, the further we walk with God, the more we realize how dark our hearts actually are. And we continue to say, oh, God, have grace and mercy and patience with me. Help me root this out. Help me be more like Christ. Help me walk as you walk. Because we love the light. And the only reason we are able to love the light is because he has transformed our hearts. He saved us. And so John is saying, you're going to know those who love Jesus because they love the light. And you're going to know those who are just putting on a show because they don't really want to deal with their sin. They want to look very religious. They want the accolades that come with looking religious but they don't want to really deal with the issue of their heart. And that, that, that's what John's communicating here. He, very, very clearly, he's saying if there's no, now God's the judge, right? But if there's no transformation of your heart and life, then you're probably not born again. That's what John is saying. Because Jesus, coming to Christ, I, I like to give this analogy. Coming to Jesus it's like standing in front of, if, if you come to Jesus and you say, and, and nothing has changed in your life, it's like saying, I stood in the middle of the interstate, I got ran over by a Mack truck, and I got up without a scar on me. It's foolish. No. If there's a truck coming, and it runs me over, if I don't die, I'm going to be horribly mangled. It's the same thing with the gospel. If you come to Christ... It transforms you far more than getting hit by a truck transforms you. It wrecks you. It breaks you. It changes you. It gives you new desires, new wants, new dreams, new ambitions. It changes everything about you. And John is saying, if that hasn't happened, then there hasn't been a sitting in the chair Maybe, maybe it got bogged down somewhere. Maybe it got bogged down like I know about God, but I, I'm rebellious to it. Or maybe it went a step further than I know about God, and I, I even like those things, but I'm not, I'm not, not going to pour my life into it. It's not going to be my highest value. He's not going to be my highest glory or honor. I'm going to subscribe that to something else. John is saying, no, 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 no. If there's no transformation, there's no life. And the only way to be transformed is for God to save you, for you to believe. So the question for us today is, do you believe? Do you fully believe? 
I'm not naive to think that there aren't many of you that walked in this room and this is a thing you do on Sundays, but it's not your life. Again, I'll say, I've said it before, I'll say it again. There are far better hobbies than coming to church. You can go to the lake. There are far better hobbies. But the gathering of the saints, people come together because God has saved them and God is saving them. Because there's no one here by accident, by the way. And he's moving in your heart and drawing you into himself so that you might know him and be saved by him. So maybe that's you. Maybe you're somewhere along that line. You, have, you know, the scripture says, worship the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. This is that same idea. We worship with our mind, with no T-show. Worship with a senses. We agree with our heart, but obviously our wills, uh, fiducia, we sit down in the chair. It's a full belief, an all-encompassing of our life. Do you believe in Jesus? Now, do you believe about Jesus? Do you have a saving belief? This is the most important question that you can ask yourself. Let's pray together. The scripture is clear that we cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless we are born again. We cannot come to the Father except through the Son, belief in the Son, Jesus. So just in this moment, quick moment, but examine your heart. Do you believe? Is the saving belief? Or has it only gotten to a particular level? Maybe it's just stuck in the cognitive. Like you understand facts about God, but you don't know him. He doesn't know you. You don't have a relationship with him. Or or maybe you know all those things and and you're just rebellious to it. You You don't want to jump in to those things. Whatever it is, just let the Lord seek out your heart. Do you have a saving belief? Has there been a transformation from the inside out? John is telling us, you can know you're saved. Do do you hate the darkness and love the light? Are you being transformed into the image of Jesus? Are your desires changing? Is your heart changing? Are your ambitions changing? What do you want most? What do you value most? What is your treasure? Father, would you continue to make you our treasure? Continue, Father, to help our unbelief. Father, your scripture is so strong to tell us that you are the only, only by your grace and your mercy can we be saved. Only through the sacrifice of Jesus can we be saved. 
My prayer is, Father, that you would save some today. Father, if we've been depending on anything else, good works, anything else, then call us to repentance, Father. Open our eyes to that. Save our souls, God. Grant us the gift of faith and repentance. Save, God. Help us to believe, Father. I believe that actually sits, commits our life to you. Heart, soul, mind, strength. All of us is yours, God. Take all of us, Father. Help us to understand the gospel preach to ourselves that gospel and to live that gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.